The scripture reading this morning is from Acts 11, verses 19 through 26. Listen and hear the word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed turning to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. We're doing something that uh, I don't think I've ever done. We're going to go back to um, some passages and just kind of a a particular church that we looked at a few weeks ago. If you're with us in the missions conference, we kind of dove deep with the church at Antioch. We looked had two passages, one in Acts 13 and one in Acts 14. We're going to go back to Acts 13 next week. But today I want to go back to this church, to Acts chapter 11, really where this church was formed, how this kind of church at Antioch that became such an influential church, the Lord used in such big ways, really came together. And I think that we can learn a couple of things in this. I, I, I had three points. I may just get to two today because... We had a lot going on in this service, but I at least want to look at gospel work in the city, what gospel work looks like in the city, and a gospel call to the city. And maybe if I'm going really fast, we'll look at gospel influence from the city, though we will get to that point in a couple of weeks if we don't get there today. So gospel work in the city. Now, just to kind of catch you up, what is this church in Antioch? How is it coming together? I'll start where we left off last week, right? There has been a resurrection, right? Jesus rose from the dead and a church is formed. He goes to his disciples and he says to them, look, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses. I want you to make disciples in Jerusalem and I want you to make disciples in every nation. And then of course the Lord ascends. He ascends to go to be by his father's side. The disciples see it. And 10 days later on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes Upon the disciples, there in an upper room in Jerusalem, they go out preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and a church is formed. 3,000 people believe. And the first part of Acts, we really read a lot about this church in Jerusalem. And it was a great church. All the apostles were teaching and preaching. They were caring for one another. It was such a healthy church. But it's always been interesting to me. The thesis of Acts, you were writing papers, you wrote a thesis statement. The thesis statement of the book of Acts is Acts 1.8, where Jesus says to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. There's this outward facing thrust in the commission of Christ, in the thesis of Acts, yet It takes until Acts chapter 8 before the gospel gets out of Jerusalem, before they go and start making disciples outside of Jerusalem. Why? 
Well, we're going to get to that here in a little bit, but, but one of the reasons is it was just such a great church in Jerusalem, and life was kind of easy in Jerusalem. There was some agreed-upon worldview factors in Jerusalem that was very different from the rest of the Roman world. But everything was great in Jerusalem until it wasn't great in Jerusalem. And of course, as you know the story, Jewish zealots, intimidated by how fast the church was growing and the claims that they were making that Jesus was Lord, began persecuting this church. Chief among the persecutors later became a leader in the church. Of course, I'm talking about Saul, who later became Paul. And we're going to hear more from him later. But this amazing scene, there's this scene where one of the deacons of this early church was persecuted. He was actually put to death. And you know, I think about that. I think about that even in terms of, of, of our little church here. And what if one of our deacons, what if one of our, our faithful deacons was put to death for his bold witness? And you see this story in Acts chapter 7, this deacon named Stephen, who was so faithful and so such a great leader in the church. He gives great testimony to the Lord. And you're actually supposed to see in his story that he really is following the way of Christ. Even as he died, what happened to him? He was dragged outside of Jerusalem, just like Jesus. He said to the Lord as he was being put to death, Father, I commit my spirit into your hands, just like Jesus. He says to God as he's being persecuted, forgive the people that are putting me to death, just like his Lord. But after this persecution, more persecution flared up. And we read actually in Acts chapter 8, I think it's on the screen, it says Saul approved of his execution, the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and all were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them into prison. So this all is breaking out in Jerusalem. Saul, I mean, imagine this. This happened in our church. If there was a guy that was going and pulling us out of our houses and putting us in prison, if one of our leaders had been killed right before our very eyes, but what happens? Finally, eight chapters in, the church gets out of Jerusalem. And remember the commission. Remember the thesis. You'll be my witnesses in all of Judea and Samaria. Where does it go? Where does the gospel go? To Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 11. Look at verse 19. Now those who were scattered, this is the first verse that Liz read, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So Luke here, who's writing Acts, is kind of thinking back this is how this church got started. It all started with Saul's persecution. It all started with the persecution of Stephen. And they, they went out. They traveled to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. And what happens in Antioch, and the, and the thing that I want us to think about today, because I think it's, it's very important, what happens in Antioch is for the first time, the gospel goes to a very global city, to a big city, to a major city. Antioch was a major city. You know, in, in many ways, the Romans were so sophisticated. In fact, 
a lot of historians and sociologists say that the world would not be as sophisticated as it was in the Roman times from the fall of the Roman Empire, which is about 500 AD, till about the year 1800. Just think about that. It took another 1300 years for the world to kind of catch up to Roman sophistication. They had an amazing system of roads. They had an amazing system of communication. They built these amazing cities, these huge cities. And for most of the Middle Ages, there, there weren't large cities in the world, but the Roman Empire had massive cities. More than a million people lived in Rome, and these cities weren't far behind. People believe that nearly a million people lived in Antioch. It, it, again, it wasn't until the 1800s that there were multiple cities in the world with more than a million people in them again. So the, the gospel now has come to a massive global influential city for the first time. And this was very different than Jerusalem. In Jerusalem at this time, there may have been about 50,000 people. And now all of a sudden the gospel goes to a city that's not homogenous. <laughs> Everybody doesn't think the same way. There's not a lot of shared worldview in Antioch like there was in Jerusalem. You could say it this way. For the first time, the gospel went from Augusta to Atlanta, right? We've been thinking about Augusta a lot this week. Augusta, some of you guys from Augusta, lovely town, yeah? Big week for Augusta. But Augusta, you know, 150,000 folks or so. Good town, wonderful town. But, you know, I would guess that Augusta, more of a homogenous way of thinking there, right? And more of a shared common worldview. Very different from Atlanta. And Antioch was like this. There were people in Antioch from all over the world. There were Persians there. There were Arabs there. There were Jewish people there. There were Greeks there. There were Romans there. And they were all living among one another. And they all believed different things. They all worshiped different gods. In Augusta, I'm sure that there's a lot of agreement politically there, right? You know, I know Augusta maybe is not into big global governments, right? That was like Jerusalem. Jerusalem was all about local government. They didn't want to be a part of this big Roman world. That was not like Antioch. In fact, Antioch was a big part of the Roman world. They loved the Roman world. In fact, Antioch was on the Orontes River, and it was said that the Orontes flows, feeds the Tiber. The Orontes flows into the Tiber. The Tiber River, of course, goes through Rome. Now, of course, if you know anything about geography, you know Antioch, this is modern-day Turkey, very far from Rome. The Orontes River does not feed into the Tiber, but it was something people said. It meant the power of Antioch is the power of Rome. It feeds the power of Rome. These cities were very linked. They were, they were, they were, they were very much together. In a town like Augusta, much like the town of Jerusalem, there's probably a lot of an agreed-upon kind of moral ethic, right? Not that everybody's following it, but there's a, there's a certain kind of agreed-upon, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. But not in Atlanta, not in Antioch. In fact, Antioch was much more, um, you know, it was much more a city of pleasure than even Atlanta. In fact, it was known as a city of pleasure. It was a very, it was a big gambling town. It was, um, it was a town of prostitution. It was a city of pleasure. So what's happening? In Acts 11, this is fascinating. For the first time, the gospel goes to a new kind of place. And I think we should ask the question, what's going to happen to it? 
what happens when the gospel goes to a city? You know, sociologists in the 1960s, 1970s, this is called the secularization thesis. They said that there's no way that Christianity is going to survive in an urbanizing world. Christianity really thrived in smaller, more homogenous kind of communities. Religion itself survived in more homogenous communities when different communities had different religions. But in a pluralistic setting, in an urbanizing setting, in cities where people believe all sort of different things, there's no way that religion will survive. The sociologist is secularization theory. It says that the world will become more secular. Now, what's interesting is that the first example of this that we have in the Bible where Christianity goes to a big, pluralistic, godless, Roman place, what happens? It takes off. Many come to faith. Many believe. The church just starts to explode. The church starts to totally change the city. And what we're going to see from this church, this powerful Antioch church, literally the whole world is changed. I, I actually believe rather than being detrimental to Christianity, the city is good for Christianity. The city gives Christianity so many opportunities. Here's a couple of things. First, when the gospel goes to a city, it's a call to really know the Lord. The city will test your faith. It will, I'll say it this way, it'll purify your faith. It'll refine your faith. It'll ask the question, what do you really believe? A lot of people say, well, you know, Christianity can't survive in cities. You know, people go to cities, they hear from all these people that believe all these different things, and they end up losing their faith. Or it may not be a city, it may be any sort of pluralistic setting, like a college campus. College kids, they grow up, they go to a pluralistic place, they meet people that believe different things than them, and all of a sudden they lose their faith. It, when that happens, though, the question I would ask is, what faith did they lose? Did they really lose their Christian faith? Did they really lose their faith in Jesus? Or are they just laying down some sort of a family tradition? Or are they just laying down some sort of like agreed upon ethos by the people that they grew up around? Is it really a relationship with Jesus that they're giving up on? Is it really that the gospel has impacted their life? Is that what they're leaving behind? Or is it just kind of an ethic that they're saying goodbye to? And I think what the city does is it reveals where your faith is. You know, before I was, before we pastored in Atlanta, we were in a town called Covington. We were there for five years. And Covington is one of these great Georgia towns where there's kind of, you've heard me talk about this, like a 20th century American Christianity ethic in the town, ethos in the town. And some of that ethic is in line with the Christian worldview. Some of it's really not. It's a Christianity that in a lot of cases is not very Christian, right? But it's kind of hard to tell who's really faithful in following the Lord or who's just kind of of this cultural ethic going on. Now, what's interesting about the Bible, Jesus is intrigued by that question. He, he all the time in his teaching gives these examples like that, where there's two things. They're hard to tell the difference. It's hard to know which one is which, right? Is it the wheat or is it the tare? Is it the sheep or is it the goat? And then, and then there's always a test that comes, the, the harvest, 
you know, comes, or the master returns, or you know, the most famous one, the, the example that he gives at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the storm comes, right? You have two houses. They're identical houses. You can't tell the difference between the houses. You look at them both and you say, wow, those are beautiful houses. But then the storm comes. And what happens to the house on the rock? It stands. What, house, what happens to the house on the sand? It crashes. I think the city will do that. It'll purify your faith. The, the city or a pluralistic environment actually isn't a scary place for a Christian. It's a good place for a Christian to go. It'll show you what you're actually believing in. It, it, it's, it's a little storm before the storm, right? It's a storm before the final. The worst thing that could happen to you is that you go through your whole life believing in some sort of false, moral, ethical 20th century gospel that is, doesn't save you, and then you stand before the Lord someday. The city is actually refining in that way. It, it shows you, well, what do you believe in? I would say this word to parents. You know, parents, I really want to encourage you in this. As you're raising your children, you actually want the Christian worldview that you're teaching them, and you should be teaching them. You want that ethic, that Christian worldview, to be challenged, to be questioned. You, you want your children to ask you hard questions. You want your kids to struggle with these things while they're still under your roof. Yes, of course, I, I want you to be given to discipleship and to family worship, and you, you need to be showing your family that the faith is the most important thing in your life. It's more important than your work. It's more important than money. It's more important than their school. It's more important than sports. But, but don't be afraid of them asking you hard questions. Don't, don't be afraid of them engaging with people that don't agree, believe exactly like you believe. That's actually good for them. That'll refine them. You want them to ask you those hard questions. You know how many times I went home when I was in college? Like eight times the entire college, right? And it wasn't because I was a bad kid and hated my family. I loved my family. I loved my parents. I just was doing college. I worked at a ranch in the summers. I would go for Thanksgiving. I'd go for Christmas. And that was basically about it. The rest of the time I was busy. I had things to do. I was there on campus. You know, I, I was just thinking I probably spent fewer than 100 nights in my parents' house since I graduated from high school. And I was thinking that, you know, after my kids graduate high school, I don't know what they're going to do. I'm pushing them toward Georgia Tech or Auburn. Either one's fine with me. But the truth is, I, I got about 18 years. And I want Imriana and John Kellis and Rainer asking me all of these hard questions. I want them, I want their faith to be refined while I can still help them figure out what, is they, what it is they believe. And you know what? That's what the city will do. I'm very grateful for that. I'm very grateful that they're having to interact with people that believe different things than they believe. The city, rather than being a detraction for your faith, I actually think it can purify your faith. It can show you what your faith is actually in. It'll cause you to think deeply about what you believe. But the city also can do more than that. When the gospel comes to the city, it can lead to, to real radical life change. You know, in a place like Atlanta, in a place like Antioch, where there's people living far from the Lord, when the gospel shows up, you can really, you can really see a difference. This is what was happening in Antioch. The gospel was penetrating. People were being changed. Barriers between people groups were falling down. 
And, 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 and not only was this life change a result of the gospel, it became a catalyst for more gospel growth. Everybody started saying, what's happening over there? What's going on? How, who are these people? You know, it's interesting. For the first time ever, the gospel, or the, the Christians, the followers of Jesus in Antioch were called Christians. Why? Well, again, back to the Romans. The Romans were smart. They built all these cities and they had a place for everyone. They built walls around the city. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem with me next year, if you go to Israel with me next year, we're taking a trip next year, you'll be able to see how Romans built their cities. And not only would they build walls around their cities, they would build walls within their cities. They would protect the people in the city from one another. Not only were they protected from outsiders, all the different groups in the cities. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem still today, the old city still reflects this. There's a Jewish quarter and a Muslim quarter and a Christian quarter. They, they separated these folks so they wouldn't get into disputes over things. This is the way every Roman city used to be. And in Antioch was no different. You had a, you had a, a Persian quarter and an, an Arab quarter and a Jewish quarter and a Greek quarter, and they separated everybody from each other. But all of a sudden, people from all of these different groups, Jewish, Persian, uh, Greek, Hellenist, they all start to become followers of Jesus. They all start, and, and the, the people in Antioch, they didn't have anything to do with them. Who are these people? They're not Jews because that guy's an Arab guy. They're not Persians. They're, what are they? And so they, they had to call this new conglomeration Christians. It was totally changing everything, and it led to, thirdly, a whole new kind of relationship you know, this is the power of the gospel to really change your life. Are you more of a Christian than you are of an educated person? Are you more of a Christian than you are old or young? Are you more a Christian than you are a part of this race or of this political viewpoint or whatever tribe this world wants to push you in? You know, we don't live in a walled age, but we kind of do, don't we? It's very hard to have a viewpoint that's different than the narratival path that you're supposed to be on if you're this and this and this and this. But what if something called you to transcend those things and into relationships with others that were part of all sort of different groups? This is the gospel call. It calls you to real life change. It calls you to totally uh, to have totally different kinds of relationship. When the gospel comes to the city, it changes everything. So that's our first point, the gospel work in the city. But secondly, I want to look at a gospel call to the city. Now, this church in Antioch is growing. People are coming to faith. People are being changed. People from all of these different groups. And so they, they need help. And I love this part of the story. Look at, um, look at verse 22 with me. It says, The report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. They sent Barnabas. I, the reason I love this is because Barnabas wasn't just like a guy in the Jerusalem church. He was one of the guys in the Jerusalem church. He was a total leader. He was, a to he was totally generous. In fact, Barnabas came on the scene in Acts chapter 4 when the church had needs. He sold a field and he distributed the proceeds to all who had needs. 
I love this. They, they basically say, here's our most generous guy, church in Antioch. And Barnabas goes up there and he gets to work. He was an encourager. He was a good man. And what happens? God's at work in this city. Barnabas comes. It says, when he came, verse 23, saw the grace of God and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, I love this. Barnabas is there. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's seeing people from all non-Jewish people, all these outsiders coming in to follow Jesus. And he says, I need some help. And so when he, it says in verse 25, it says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. This is amazing. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was at Antioch that the church, the, Christ, the, the disciples were first called Christians. Did you catch that? How did the church in Antioch get formed? It was Saul who was in Jerusalem persecuting these Christians, hating these new Christians, dragging them outside of their houses, putting them to death. They all fled. These people from, as we learned earlier, from Cyrene and Cyprus came up to Antioch. They planted this church and God is blessing this church. But in the meantime, Saul meets Jesus. And this guy who hated the church, who hated Christianity, becomes this great teacher. He becomes a disciple maker. He begins pe reaching people that were not Jewish, outsiders. They start following Jesus. And Barnabas, obviously, we can imagine this is about a 10-year period. Barnabas hears about this. And so then he goes and gets the guy who formerly persecuted the church planters of the church at Antioch to come and be a fellow pastor with him. And the church grows all the more. And God blesses them. I say this to say this. Look, there are some of you here, and for whatever reason, the Lord will move you on from Atlanta. You'll have another job opportunity somewhere that you should take. And, or you're called to go be a part of a church planting team somewhere. Maybe God will send you overseas to go to a place that has not yet been impacted by the gospel. There, there'll be some of you that the Lord calls away. But unless that happens, <laughs> I just want to encourage you to lean in to what the Lord is doing in our city. Don't retreat, and here's the deal, don't retreat to comfort. I hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, I just, I don't want to put up with these difficult things. I don't want to mess with these young people. I don't want to do this. I don't, want to. don't do that. Be a Barnabas. I love this. Barnabas is here in Jerusalem. He's got all these gifts, and he says, how can I be useful? And he shows up, and the Lord uses him mightily. You know, look, look, the city can be a tough place. Listen, the city can be a tough place. And, and there's all these sort of things that you have to deal with in the city. And there, there's all these sort of worldviews that you have to interact with. And sometimes it's nice to say, man, it'd be nice to just go to a simple little place. But look, the Lord is at work here. God is doing the work here. And, and you know what? If, if, if God's going to continue to work here, we need some Barnabas. We need some folks to come along and encourage the flock and shepherd the flock and come alongside the flock and care for the flock and teach the flock. We need some Barnabas. We need a lot of Barnabas. You know, in 313 AD, the year that the Edict of Milan was signed, before Christianity was even legal, so before the Edict of Milan was signed, before Christianity was legal in the Roman world, 56% of the Roman world before it was a good thing to be a Christian, right? When it was still illegal, 56% of the 
of the Roman world were Christians. Historians have no category for this. How did this little ragtag group of like fishermen folks in this far off Judea start this movement of folks that totally revolutionized the most sophisticated people ever until modern day? How did this happen? What happened? And I'll tell you what happened. You know where basically 100% of that 56% lived? They lived in the Roman cities. That's where the Christians were. Christians went to the cities and they engaged with the cities and they strived with the cities and they, they engaged with all the ills of the city and the struggles of the city and God used them and it changed the whole culture. Listen, this is what I've been saying. So often the places of greatest cultural influence are the places of least gospel influence. I'm so grateful for people like Barnabas, who said, I'll go to Antioch. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go there. I'll go to big Antioch, and I'll make a difference. And as we see in the future, uh, as we look at this in the next couple of weeks, this church, this, this, this church changed the whole world. So as we close, I just want to give you some, some things to think about, some applications. First, Consider your calling. Consider your calling. You know, in 1965, Atlanta had churches that were filled on every corner. There were churches everywhere. And this is a stat that we've given since we planted Christ's covenant. In 1965, there were 166 Baptist churches. I know there's other churches and other faithful churches in our city, but just this one little shred 166 Baptist churches in this city and now today only really a handful of those survive with any sort of vitality why is that why is that I think it's because people retreated they either assimilated into kind of a secular gospel didn't hold on to biblical orthodoxy, or they kind of withdrew to places where there was more gospel acceptance and it wasn't so pluralistic. And our goal for the beginning at Christ's Covenant was to be a deeply orthodox church that loves the truth of God's Word, that believes that the Bible is the Word of Christ, that holds to Christian conviction deeply, but to be a light in the midst of this city it's one of the reasons that we're buying this building just right down the road. We, we, we want to be centrally located. Consider your calling. You are here. We need you to be a part of this. How's the Lord going to use you? Are you withdrawing or are you engaging? Are you leaning out or are you leaning in? Are you making disciples? You know, are you engaging with people that think differently than you? Are you engaging in outward-facing relationships? Even though it's hard, I know it's hard. Are you trying to solve problems? Are you giving yourselves to service? Consider your calling. What are you doing with your life that is advancing the kingdom? And then two, second kind of application, consider your contribution just very practically. Um, we have a great test in front of us. God is blessing this church. And if we can pull off pursuing our home, it's going to be a huge step for us. And so I do hope, I mean, we already talked about this, but I just want to reiterate it. 
I do. If you'll take that card, it'll be a regular point of prayer. In the rhythms guides that Blake mentioned, we have a little daily prayer guide. Consider your contribution. How are you going to engage? You know something that Jesus said? This is fascinating. He says, he said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I, for a long time in my life, read that as where your heart is, your treasure will be, right? You're, you're, you th- if you believe in something, right? If you believe in something, you'll give to it, right? I think that's how we kind of talk about it in church. Like if you really love the Lord, you'll give to the Lord, right? And maybe that's true, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus actually said, where your treasure is, your heart will follow. In other words, you want to have a heart for the Lord? You want to have a heart for the Lord? You want to, you want to, you want to give your life to the Lord? You want to do something? Engage with what the Lord is doing. Invest in what the Lord is doing financially, ministerially. You want to have a heart for the Lord? Give yourself to the Lord. Where your treasure is, your heart's going to follow. And then number three, and I just want to encourage you with this. Take the long view. Consider the long view on this one. You know, I I really hope, you know, Christ's covenant, we're three years old, three and a half years old. You know, Paige and I, not every calling in your life is a long calling. Paige and I, I was in Covington for five years. That's about the time that I thought I'd be there. We were in Birmingham three and a half years. We actually thought we'd be there a lot longer, but the Lord called us to this. When we came here, we said, let's try to go there for 30 years. (laughs) Let's just see if for 30 years, if we really give ourselves to something, the Lord can kind of use the compounding interest of that and really make a difference. And you know, I think the same is true. It may not be pastoring a church, but it may be something. Can you give yourself to something over a long period of time? What if you gave yourself to your street? What if you gave yourself to a neighborhood? What if you gave yourself to your workplace? What if you gave yourself to a group? What if you gave yourself to making just a few disciples every year? What could the Lord do with that in 10 years or 20 years? You know, even generosity. What, what can the Lord do with, with faithfulness and little things over a long period of time? The Lord can do so much. You know, we didn't get to it, but the third point is the impact from the city. And we're going to see this in a few weeks. God uses this church in Antioch to change the world, to change the modern, to change the missions movement, to, to plant churches. It's amazing. And, you know, I, I so believe that God is at work here at Christ's covenant, and, and he's at work through you. You are Christ's covenant. So consider your calling. God has called you to this. Consider your contribution and take the long view on this. You know, people love, men love to build cities, don't they? That's what men and women go do. They go make a name for themselves. They go to a city. They build a big business. They go and build a big house. They go make a name for themselves. But really what Christians do, and I want you to hear this, is that we're more interested not in building cities, but in building a city within a city. Hebrews 11, it's talking about Abraham's faith. And it said, Abraham left his home and he lived in tents because he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's the city that we're really after here. We're saying this pursue Atlanta, but we, we want to see what, what kind of city can God really build out of Atlanta, the city within the city. 
The city where the designer and the builder of this city is the Lord. It's the Lord's work. The Lord is moving and working to ultimately bring people into this eternal, imperishable city. If you go to Antioch today, the same Antioch that Barnabas and Saul and Lucius and all these guys were a part of, it's just ruins. It's cool. It's really cool, but it's just ruins. But what if there was a city that was imperishable, that could never be torn down, that is eternal, that would never end? That's the city that the Lord is inviting us to. That's the city that the Lord is inviting us to work for. And that's the city that he gives us in Jesus. And so as we look to that city, I'm going to invite you, as our deacons come forward, to join with me in taking the Lord's Supper and what this is for us, and this is a meal for believers. If you're a Christian here today, if you're trusting in Christ, if you're identifying wholly with Jesus, and if you're not a Christian and you're here, I'm so glad you're here, but this is not for you, okay? So please just allow the elements to pass forward. Do not take these elements as they come unless you're calling on the Lord Jesus for life and for salvation. But if you are, I invite you to take these elements and, and really what these are, it's our stake, if you will. It's our monument. I love what Graham said last week. Christians, in a sense, have signs. They have monuments. And they're not monuments to men. They're not monuments to ourselves. They're not monuments to our achievements. They're, they're signs to what Jesus has done. And that's what this is. These elements, this bread and this wine, they're signs. They're signs that our hope it's not in ourselves or in our righteousness because we, like everything that man has ever done, is, are very perishable. But in Christ, we have eternal forgiveness, eternal mercy, eternal life that's offered to us through Jesus, the one who was broken on our behalf and then the one who conquered death for us. And we have the promise of an eternal home this covenant that he's made with us. He says, I'm, I'm offering you this covenant in my blood that cannot be broken. This covenant, this promise that he will love us and that he will care for us until we are with him in his presence in an eternal home in the new Jerusalem. And so as we think about these things, as we think about what God is calling us to, think about the, the, the identity and the life that we have in Jesus, I invite you to take these elements and just hold on to them. We'll take them corporately here in a few moments. But meditate on these things as Jordan leads.